Well, good morning, New Day. So good to see you guys. Thank each and every one of you so much for coming out today for the continuation of our current teaching series called Christ the King, where we're studying the gospel according to Matthew. However you're joining us today online, in person, thanks so much for being here. Today we're actually concluding a mini-series within Matthew's gospel that's been on the subject and topic of Jesus's great power. So far in this series, we've seen that Jesus demonstrates power over disease. Jesus demonstrates power uh, over nature. Jesus demonstrates power over demons. Jesus demonstrates power over sin. Well, our text today is Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, and in our passage today, we see yet another amazing demonstration of Jesus's power. Today, we see a demonstration of his power over death. Matthew has been revealing to us who Jesus is. He has been sharing with us uh, Jesus's great power in example after example after example. And, and here in our passage today, uh, we see the acme, we see the pinnacle, we see the climax of the point that Matthew is trying to make as he shows us Jesus's power over death. And I can't think of a more helpful sermon because death is something that has crippled people with fear uh, since the creation of man, all right? This is just something people are afraid. People are afraid of what happens when we die. People are afraid of what happens when this life comes to an end. I was doing some research, in fact, in preparation for today's sermon, and while researching universal fears, uh, I noticed something that was very interesting to me. What I noticed is that researchers do not agree on what should make the list, okay? The first article I read listed five universal fears. The second article I read listed three universal fears. The third article I read listed 10 universal fears. And on every list, there were different items, save one. On every list was the fear of death. Well, friends, Jesus understood this fear. And he actually came to earth to conquer death in order that he might set us free from our fear of it. And to assuage our fear of death, Jesus came sharing many comforting words. For example, Jesus said in John 5, 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him uh, who sent me, has eternal life. And finally, John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Amen. But for the people to whom Jesus originally spoke these words, you can imagine this was a tough pill to swallow, right? I mean, imagine if one of your neighbors knocked on your door uh, today after church and just said, hey, I just want you to know that I have uh, the power over life and death, and uh, don't worry, when you die, I will, I will raise you to eternal life. I mean, think about it. Think of what a preposterous claim this appeared to be to all who originally heard it. It was preposterous. And Jesus understood this. Jesus knew this would be a tough pill to swallow, and that's why Jesus didn't merely come claiming to have power over death. No, 
Jesus went beyond saying he had power over death. Jesus showed the people that what he claimed was true. And that's exactly what we see in our text today. Again, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, Jesus gives a demonstration of the power he claimed to have. All right, let's get into our text right before we do. Uh, here's a, just a little uh, context for you. Where we left off last week, Jesus was explaining to the people why his ministry looked so vastly different from that of the religious leaders. And as Jesus was giving this explanation to the people, he was interrupted by a very prominent man uh, of Capernaum named Jairus. And understand that besides Jesus today, Jairus is our central character. If you're taking notes today, now would be a great time to pull them out, grab that pen that one of our friendly host team members handed to you at the door, and I'll give you some hooks to hang your thoughts on as we work our way through the story. If you're taking notes, the first thing we see in our text is what we're going to call Jairus's dilemma. Jairus's dilemma. Now, you all are extra quiet today, so let's say this one out loud. Jairus's dilemma. One more time. Jairus's dilemma. There we go. All right. Jairus's dilemma was this Jairus had declared Jesus public enemy number one, yet now Jairus needed Jesus' help. And his dilemma was Will I turn to Jesus for the help that I need? Let me show this to you. The gospel writer Luke says this, there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, unlike Matthew's account of this event, we learn from Mark's account and Luke's account that Jairus wasn't just one of the rulers of the synagogue. He was actually the chief ruler of the synagogue. So in his day, Jairus was a big deal, uh, likely one of the most important and highly respected men in all of Capernaum. And what you need to realize is this, because he was one of the religious leaders, the chief ruler of the synagogue, that made him an automatic enemy of Jesus. And it's not that Jesus counted Jairus as an enemy, it's that Jairus counted Jesus as an enemy. As we learned last week, when Jesus came, he came denouncing the religious leaders. Jesus said, they appear to be uh, the voice of God, but in reality, they are not God's voice. They are false prophets. They come across as shepherds who mean the sheep well, but in reality, they are ravenous wolves who will do you much harm. And these are the words spoken about people like Jairus. And in response to being called a ravenous wolf, in response to being called a false prophet, Jairus and his ilk responded by labeling Jesus with a label of their own. Jesus called them false prophets and they called Jesus a blasphemer. And more than that, they called him a drunkard, they called him a glutton, uh, they, they, they called him a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and they called him a blasphemer, they called him a heretic. They had labeled Jesus public enemy number one. But here's the deal, Jairus' daughter got sick. Deathly ill, in fact. 
and Jairus got desperate. No doubt Jesus was the last person in the world Jairus wanted to turn to. No doubt he and his wife, he and Mrs. Jairus, had exhausted all other options before turning to Jesus. But when nothing was working, they got to thinking how Jesus had demonstrated this unbelievable power just recently in and around Capernaum. They remembered how Jesus healed disease. They remembered the reports of Jesus calming the hurricane. They remembered how Jesus had cast out demons. And they remembered, and they very well may have been there when Jesus proved his ability to forgive sin by healing the paralytic. So they had heard the reports. They had likely been witness to at least some of the demonstrations of Jesus's power themselves. And now they're wondering if Jesus, with all his great power, might use some of it in order to help their precious little girl. And they became convinced that he could. But man alive, to turn to the enemy for help to turn to Jesus for help, that would result in criticism at best and excommunication from the synagogue at worst, which in those days was the worst possible thing that could happen to you. Being the ruler of the synagogue made Jairus powerful and respected, and turning to Jesus was to risk losing everything. But not turning to Jesus was to risk losing something more precious still, the life of his little girl. So Jairus, you see his dilemma. He was one of the religious leaders and enemy of Jesus, yet he knew that Jesus was his daughter's only hope. So the choice before him was this, will I uh, choose my position and my pride or will I choose the life of my daughter? Well, being a loving father, he chose his daughter. She was more precious to him than anything else. So he went to Jesus And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, explaining to Jesus that he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, here's how Jesus could have responded. He could have said, hey, Jairus, when your daughter was healthy, you labeled me a heretic and a blasphemer and would have gladly seen me put to death. Oh, but now that you're in trouble, you come to me bowing down like you and I are on friendly terms. Why don't you go and ask your fellow religious leaders for help? But this was not the way of our Lord. He bore no grudge and he did not refuse Jairus. Jesus saw Jairus as a man who needed his help, and Jesus' one desire was to acquiesce to his request. So we read in Matthew 9, 19, how Jesus rose and followed him along with his disciples. Now, as you can imagine, Jairus is very eager, uh, to state it mildly, to get to Jesus, uh, uh, Jairus is very eager to get Jesus to his home. At this point, his daughter is on her deathbed, so time is of the essence. The very worst possible thing that could happen right now is to have some kind of interruption or delay. Yet, friends, that's exactly the second thing we see in our text. So number one was Jairus' dilemma. Secondly, what we see is what we're going to call Jesus' delay. Jesus' 
delay. As they were traveling along, no doubt at a rapid pace, behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind Jesus. Mark adds this detail that Matthew does not include. Mark tells us that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, you know, trying to get well, but was no better. Instead, she grew worse. But when she heard the reports about Jesus, the same reports that Jairus and his wife had heard about Jesus, she tracked Jesus down, which again, was not hard to do, but she tracked Jesus down. She pushed her way through the crowd and came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, and friends in the Greek, this is continuous action. She kept telling herself and saying to herself over and over and over, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And when she did, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now, when Jesus perceived that someone had touched him and perceived that healing power had come out from him. He turned around and addressed the crowd and asked them, who touched my garments? But Jesus's disciples think this is a stupid question because everyone's touching Jesus. They didn't realize that someone had touched Jesus and that in response, healing power had come out of Jesus. So they didn't understand his question. They thought it was a stupid question because as we just read, the huge crowds pressing in on him from every angle. So his disciples say to him, Jesus, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? But Jesus won't be deterred. And he is scanning the crowd to see who had done it. But far from anyone fessing up to having touched Jesus, Luke tells us, all denied it. But Jesus finally spots the woman who had been healed. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, meaning that when she saw that she could no longer hide anymore, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now, you and I read about this woman, and we're like, oh, that's just so nice. That is so sweet. Oh, I love that Jesus did this. Guess who's not happy about this? Who's not happy about this? Jairus. Jairus has told Jesus, my daughter's life is hanging on by a thread. And now here's this woman. Did you see what it said? She suffered for 12 years. And after Jesus healed her, she gave her testimony to everyone present, telling what life had been like for her over the last 12 years. Friends, this wasn't a 30-second delay. If she's anything like me, this could have easily been an hour. She went on and on and on. Oh, I went to this guy. He couldn't help me. Then I went to this lady. She couldn't help me. I had to drain my retirement, cash in all my Bitcoin. I just spent all my money doing all these things. And I tried to get the best help I could. Nobody could help me. It didn't work. Here, I've been ostracized from my family. I've been ostracized from my friends. I'm considered ceremonially unclean. I can't even come to synagogue. I can't, all this stuff. She is laying out the details of her life. And she's just going on and on and on. Now, Jesus is compassionately, lovingly listening. Jesus is happy that this woman's giving testimony to all of his healing power. But, but, but Jairus, poor Jairus, 
I feel for him. Anybody not the most patient person in the world like me? You know, I feel for Jairus. Jairus is, Jesus is patiently listening. Jairus is impatiently, uh, impatiently fidgeting. Jairus has all kinds of nervous energy and his mind is consumed with one thought. Will we make it in time for my daughter? Well, this woman finally wraps up her story. The story that Jairus thought would never end. And after hearing it, Jesus compassionately replies to the woman. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And Jairus thinks, finally we can go. Finally this is over. As happy as Jairus is that this woman got the help that she needed, he is most concerned uh, to get the help his daughter needed. So on to his house they go. Now, as I've already mentioned, when Jairus left his house, it was his daughter's life that was hanging on by a thread. But friends, because of Jesus's delay, it's now Jairus's hope that's hanging on by a thread. He knew that because of this delay, it might now be too late. And it's at this very point that his worst fears are confirmed, which leads to number three, Jairus's despair. Let's say that out loud together. Jairus's despair. As Jairus is wondering if Jesus will make it to the house in time, someone from his house arrives with this message. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Now, friends, I suspect that Jairus is angry. Angry at this woman who interrupted. Maybe Jesus could have made it in time if he hadn't been interrupted. And maybe Jairus is even angry at Jesus. There is no doubt in my mind that any loving parent would have communicated uh, how important it was that Jesus get to his house immediately because of the nature of his daughter's condition. She, she is hanging on by a thread. She's breathing her last couple breaths. Let's get to the house quick. Yet Jesus just stops as if they had had the time. But friends, any anger that Jairus may have felt were immediately replaced with the emotion of sorrow. Any anger that he may have felt was immediately drowned in despair because now his little girl was gone. Coming to Jesus for Jairus, it was a Hail Mary, but it hadn't worked. He had failed, and now his daughter, his only child, who was just blossoming into womanhood, who should have had her whole life in front of her, was gone. And Jesus, no doubt, just sees the heartbreak all over Jairus. And so on hearing the news, Jesus turns to Jairus and encourages him saying, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. Now, even though Jairus's hope had just been crushed by the news of his daughter's death, it appears that he believed what Jesus said because they continue heading to his house. Jairus doesn't say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, it's okay, you can go home now. No, they keep going. So it seems that Jairus believed that Jesus could do what he said he can do. And friends, it's a good thing that they continued on to his house because it's at Jairus' house that we see number four, 
Jesus's demonstration. And friends, we're about to see Jesus's next demonstration of power. When they finally arrive at Jairus's house, Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Matthew 9.23 tells us that the traditional flute players had been hired to add to the noise. And friends, this is because a first century Jewish funeral was very different than a 21st century American funeral. For us, uh, funerals are quiet affairs, but it was the exact opposite for the Jews. The deeper their grief, the louder the noise they made. People were weeping and wailing, and that's what Jesus walked into. So Jesus enters the home, and he says this, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, when we read this, being 21st century Americans, we, we read it a certain way, and friends, it's the wrong way to read it. We read this as Jesus being very insensitive, walking in as everyone's weeping over the girl's death and then asking a stupid question, why are you all weeping? No, 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 that's not what's going on here. Remember when during a hurricane, Jesus asked his disciples, why are you afraid? And it almost seemed that Jesus was being insensitive, but I explained to you, no, there was actually a very good reason for why they ought to have believed. Well, in the same way, there's a very good reason for this question that Jesus asked. Jesus is not being insensitive. No, from my study, I've concluded Jesus here is announcing good news. I think the sense of his question is this, why are you crying? I'm here. So there's no need to warn, uh, there's no need to mourn for though she sleeps in death, I'm about to wake her up. So Jesus is announcing good news. But in response to this announcement, we read that they, the people gathered at the funeral, uh, they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Well, at Jesus's order, all the detractors, all the faithless, they were asked to leave. They were asked to leave the house. They were asked to go wait outside. Luke tells us that Jesus kicked everyone out except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Now, they were already in the house, but now they enter the young girl's room. And taking her by the hand, he, Jesus, said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And when Jesus gave that command, Luke tells us her spirit returned and she got up at once. Friends, do you remember the two demon-possessed men who lived in the region of the Gadarenes? One of them was possessed by a legion of demons, but with a word, Jesus said, go, and they left. And here, with a word, Jesus says, arise, and her spirit returned, and she came back to life. Another amazing demonstration of Jesus's power. Now, not surprisingly, all who witnessed the miracle, the astounding demonstration of power, uh, were immediately overcome with amazement. This girl who moments before was dead was now up and walking and no one knew what to do. Nobody knew how to respond. Everyone's acting like a deer caught in headlights. They're just frozen in amazement. And this leads to the last thing we see in our text, which is Jairus's directions. And here I'm referring to the directions that Jesus gave to Jairus. I have think 
The people just needed to be told something to do because they were just so frozen in amazement. And so Jesus helps them out, gives them some practical instruction. After the girl's resurrection, we read this, uh, Jesus directed Jairus that something should be given her to eat. Now think about this. His daughter had this deteriorating condition. We don't know how many weeks or months, but if you've ever dealt with people who are on death's door, they don't eat anymore. They can hardly breathe. Uh, forget about eating. So here's this girl who no doubt needed uh, nutrition and was hungry. And so Jesus gives the directions to Jairus to give his daughter something to eat. And then Jesus charged them, meaning Jairus and his wife, to tell no one what had happened. Now, friends, that one little verse right there, tell no one that happened, caused me a good 10 extra hours of sermon prep. I never even realized till I studied this deeply how often in the Gospels Jesus tells people, hey, I know I just healed you, don't tell anyone about it. Oh, you realize finally that I'm the Messiah? Great, tell no one. <laughs> and that was so confusing to me. So I spent a good, probably ten, a good 10 extra hours on top of my 20 that it normally takes me, a good 10 extra hours to try to figure this out. Anybody interested to learn the answer? Yeah. All right, good, because I spent a long time. Did I mention that? All right, here's the deal. The people had the wrong view of Messiah and of what he would come to do. They rightly read the Old Testament scriptures that said Messiah would come as king and rule over an eternal kingdom. So they were right about that. But what they failed to realize was that there would be two advents of Messiah, a first coming and a second coming. At his second coming, he would come to rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. But at his first coming, he would come to suffer and die for the sins of the world. So second coming, conquering king, first coming, suffering servant. But they failed to realize that there were two advents uh, of Messiah. So if the Jews of the first century were to go around spreading the news, look what Jesus has done, he truly is the Messiah. If they went around spreading that, here's the way it would have been received by all the Jews of their day because of the perception they had in their mind concerning Messiah. They would have viewed that as, oh my goodness, the military and political leader promised in the Old Testament uh, has finally come and he will now overthrow Rome who occupied the land of Israel in the first century. And friends, Rome did not take kindly to people they viewed as insurrectionists. And had all this news been shared prematurely about who Jesus was and his true identity, it would have been misunderstood, it would have been spread, hey, the political military ruler who's going to overthrow Rome, he's finally here, spread the word, and Rome, no doubt, would have identified Jesus, found him, and put him to death prematurely. Now, Jesus was born to die. And when the time came, he did not shrink back, not even from death. But Jesus wanted to die on God's timetable, not anyone else's. Friends, next week, uh, the theme of the sermon is miracles of sight and sound. And in next week's sermon, we're going to see that Messiah needed to fulfill specific prophecies and he needed to perform specific miracles that uh, verified and authenticated his true identity as the Messiah that God promised to send into the world. Well, guess what Jesus wouldn't be able to do if he died before the appointed time? 
he wouldn't have been able to fulfill the specific prophecies, nor would he have been able to perform the specific miracles that Messiah was supposed to come and do. So in Matthew chapter 28, oh, we see the great commission. We see Jesus's command to go and tell. But all throughout his life, until he died and resurrected from the grave, you don't see the great commission. You see what we could call the great restriction. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Hey, as a little side note, had they gone and told all the good news at that point, they would have gone and shared an incomplete gospel. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians makes clear the essential components of the gospel. It's not just that Jesus lived, it's that he died and resurrected from the grave. And because he rose and had life after death, you can too. Friends, that good news could not yet be proclaimed because he hadn't died, nor had he risen from the dead. So all this to say, Jesus had good reasons during his ministry to tell people, tell no one what I've done nor disclose to people just yet who I really am. But the question begs, did it work? Was Jesus able to keep people quiet? No, no. Try as he might, Matthew tells us this, the report of this, the report of the girl's resurrection went through all that district. Translation, word of what happened spread like wildfire throughout that region and no doubt well beyond. So some people say, oh, Jesus was using reverse psychology. He told them not to so that they would. And this, that's not what was going on. Jesus really meant it. Don't make my ministry harder. When they went and spread the news, he couldn't even, uh, he, had, he was greatly hindered in his gospel ministry because people kept coming to him for a free meal or for a miracle. And Jesus primarily came to preach the gospel. So when he said, don't tell, uh, he meant it. He didn't want to be hindered in his gospel ministry. We read in one of the gospels how because people kept sharing all the news when they weren't supposed to, Jesus could no longer enter a town publicly. He had to come to the feasts in Jerusalem and enter certain towns like hidden, secretly. So Jesus really meant it when he said, don't tell anyone. And when people did, when they disobeyed his command, I mean, they did it because they were so happy that, for what Jesus had done for them. But when they did it, they actually endangered his life. And they made it so much harder for Jesus. Okay. We have now worked our way through Matthew 9, verses 18 to 26. And now that we have, I want to spend a little bit of time highlighting Matthew's purpose for writing that part of his gospel. And friends, it's real simple. Matthew wrote what he wrote that we might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as God. This is Matthew's sole ambition in chapters 8 and 9 of his gospel. Friends, only God can heal disease, yet Matthew's shown us that Jesus has the power to heal disease. Only God can command nature, yet Matthew's shown us that Jesus has the power to command nature. Only God uh, has dominion over demons, yet Matthew's shown us that Jesus has dominion over demons. Only God can forgive sin, yet Matthew's shown us Jesus' ability to forgive sin. And finally, only God can raise the dead to life, yet Matthew's shown us through our passage today that Jesus possesses this exact same power. 
So friends, Matthew could not be more clear. He is trying to tell us who Jesus is. He's telling us through what he wrote that Jesus is none other than God incarnate, God in the flesh. But Matthew's not content to tell us who Jesus is. Matthew calls on us to believe on Jesus for who he is. And from Jairus' example, we learn how to properly come to Jesus. So let me share that briefly in closing. Number one, Matthew tells us this. Like Jairus, if we want to be saved, we, we must come to Jesus in poverty of spirit. Jairus tried to get the help that he needed every other which way apart from Jesus. But when he realized no one can provide for me what I need other than Jesus, he he came in poverty of spirit to Jesus. He came in desperation asking Jesus to do for him what he could not do for himself. And friends, that's how you and I are to come to Jesus, in, in, in poverty of spirit, in desperation. Jesus kicked off his Sermon on the Mount as follows in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And friends, to be poor in spirit means this. It means to recognize that we have nothing of value with which to offer Jesus in exchange for our salvation. And when we realize that we have nothing of value with which to purchase our salvation, we come to Jesus in desperation, in poverty of spirit, asking him to do for us what we lack the ability to do for ourselves. And friends, coming to Jesus uh, with this poverty of spirit mentality, it's the only way to come to Jesus. He's the only one who has what we need, and we need to come to him desperate for him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And friends, what we can't do for ourselves is save ourselves from the penalty that God's law demands for sin, which is death. But Jesus can. And so we must come to him, asking him for help. Number two, we learn from Jairus' example, secondly, that not only do we need to come to Jesus in poverty of spirit, but secondly, we must come to Jesus in humility. Remember, Jairus considered Jesus public enemy number one. He likely warned his congregation uh, there in the synagogue in Capernaum, which, by the way, stands to this day. I went there when I visited Israel. It's amazing. But Jairus had warned his congregation of, of the dangerous heretic blasphemer named Jesus, who was from Nazareth. And now he realizes, I was dead wrong. And so he comes to Jesus. And do you remember what our text said? It said he came and he knelt before Jesus. He came and he bowed reverently before Jesus. Friends, I think this was a physical apology. He didn't use words, but with his body, he bowed and knelt before Jesus with reverence, saying he was wrong. Saying he was wrong and saying he needed Jesus' help. And friends, it takes humility to do such a thing. Here he was a powerful, respected leader, and and he was supposed to be the one who knew the answers. And if anyone was supposed to recognize Messiah when he came, it was someone like Jairus, but he got it wrong. But you know what? He wasn't too proud to admit his fault. And so in kneeling, I believe he was saying, Jesus, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And friends, that's how we get saved. That's how we get right with God. We come before him, we admit our fault, We admit that he has a standard that we have violated, that we have fallen short of. And we say, in humility, God, I'm so sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. 
God, I know my sin deserves to be punished, but let the punishment that Jesus endured on the cross count as my punishment for sin so that I can go free. And we come to him in humility, remembering Jesus' promise of Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. One last thing, and it's this. Thirdly, from Jairus' example, we learn this. We must come to Jesus willing to pay whatever the cost. Do you guys remember the sermon I did back in Matthew chapter 8? It was called The High Cost of Discipleship. And in that passage, there's three men who profess allegiance to Jesus, but one ended up, when push came to shove, one ended up choosing comfort over Jesus, one ended up choosing riches over Jesus, and, and one other still uh, chose family over Jesus. And do you guys remember what Jesus said to this man? Jesus said, you are not worthy to be my disciple, nor are you fit for the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said that because discipleship requires a total commitment. Well, friends, when we see Jairus' example, we see that very total commitment. He knew it would cost him his reputation in the town. He knew it would cost him likely excommunication in the synagogue. He knew that he would be dethroned as chief ruler of the synagogue if he turned to the enemy, if he turned to Jesus. Yet he said, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, whatever the price, I'm more than willing to pay because Jesus is the only one who has what I need. And friends, that's how we have to come to Jesus. Whatever it costs. Oh, it costs our job. It costs us a relationship with a childhood best friend. It costs us uh, some division in the family. It costs us uh, prestige. Uh, it costs us, you know, hey, maybe now we're the social pariah at work because uh, we, we believe in God and we take a stand for what's right. And, and the true follower of Jesus, the true disciple of Jesus says, hey, whatever the cost, whatever the cost, I'm willing to pay. Because we understand that that's what Jesus requires, total commitment. And friends, the glorious news of the gospel is this. When we come to Jesus like this, in humility and in poverty of spirit and with a willingness to pay whatever the cost, when we come to Jesus like this, Jesus delivers us from death. And Jesus delivers us from the fear of death. Oh, we still die physically. But the sting of death is removed in that Jesus resurrects our dead body from the grave. The moment that we die, our spirit goes to be with the Lord and our body awaits a future resurrection. At the rapture of the church, uh, Jesus, at the trumpet call, the, the dead in Christ are raised. Uh, the bodies are transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And now our redeemed spirit can live in a redeemed body for all eternity in a redeemed creation. And friends, it's this knowledge that this is our lot after death that Jesus uses to free us from the fear of death. As the author of Hebrews put it, Jesus died to set free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So the wonderful news of the gospel is this. You don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid uh, of dying. You don't have to be afraid of what happens when this life ends. You can get right with God today. You can be pardoned from the penalty for sin, and you can be granted citizenship in the eternal kingdom of Christ. And though one day you will die, all who believe in him will live.
So friends, if you want that today, I want to give you the invite to get right with God today. And if you want to do that, as you bow your head and close your eyes, I want to ask that you'd say something along these lines to God in your heart in prayer. Talking to those of you online, I'm talking to everyone here in person. Just say this to God. Say, Heavenly Father, I come to you today in poverty of spirit. I readily confess that I have nothing of value with which to purchase my salvation. So I come to you today in poverty of spirit. I come to you today in desperation, asking that you would purchase for me what I cannot obtain myself, my salvation. God, I recognize today that it's only made possible through Jesus. God, I come to you today in humility, confessing before you that I've fallen short of your glorious standard. And God, I recognize that falling short of your standard, it's called sin. And today in humility, I confess that I'm wrong, that I've been wrong, that I've sinned, that I've done wrong, that I've fallen short. And God, I ask for your forgiveness. Finally, God, I understand that to follow Jesus in discipleship takes a total commitment, a willingness to pay whatever the price. So God, whether that be popularity, prestige, acceptance, relationships, my job, or whatever else, I want you to know I'll gladly pay the price. And now upon my confession of faith, I humbly ask that you would pardon my sins and free me from the fear of death. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.